This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book is titled Armor of Glass. And joining me from Missouri is our author, R.M.A. Spears. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. This book is a novel. It is fictional in an account. And I would suggest maybe for our listeners, this might be a guy's read. Am I incorrect in assessing it that way? No, it is. It is uh, very much so. And uh, I should probably try and adjust some of my marketing that way. You have a 27-year career in military, so it has some of those um, elements, I would think, in the uh, thought process and in the writing style. Would you describe it that way as well? Absolutely. I don't uh, sugarcoat it much. Uh, it's definitely not a fairy tale, uh, like so many syrupy love stories or uh, romance novels. It's more raw, harsh, bitter, and the truth is a little hard to swallow sometimes. 258 pages. What is the premise of Armor of Glass? It's about when a uh, down-on-his-luck middle-aged Marine uh, telephones a former girlfriend to meet for lunch, where they share mutual lives of contented lives and marriages, and they unwittingly trigger a chain of events that threaten to expose her career of salacious revenge and destroy both of their careers. Wow. I, I'm guessing that most writers will draw from something they've observed. Is there any element of that in your book, in your novel? Well, the novel is based on the truth. So a lot of it is drawn from uh, uh, things that I was involved with, and uh, believe it or pretty much that. Okay. Uh, who would you think would be the uh, target audience? I think I understand who it is, and we may have touched on that, but would you say that there's a possibility there's a, an even expanded market from what we originally discussed? Well, I'm hoping there's an expanded market. It depends on how much people want to read something that's different from what they're used to. Fortunately, you already have three five-star reviews from Reader's Favorite, and one of them did say that it was a little tough to read, but it was enlightening in the process. But basically, it's geared toward uh, men in the essence of men love differently than uh, women do. And it expresses it that way. Like I said, it's not, uh, it doesn't candy coat uh, how men are involved in relationships, and their focus pretty much is on their careers. As you began to write this, uh, did you start out to make this a character driven novel, or is there some action also included in your book? There is a little bit of action. Uh, that was one of the things that, uh, quite frankly, I personally missed in my whole Marine Corps career until uh, finally in 2003 I was part of the uh, invasion of Iraq. So the book pretty much follows a down on his left Marine, a Marine that uh, uh, a lot of Marines join because they want the action, and there's uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, periods of long transitions of uh, long periods of time where you have peace, and in that time you spend a lot of time 
running, reading, and training, and training yourself to uh, to death. And Ron, as you began to write this, did you sit down and uh, do an outline, or how did you initially approach the novel and its story? Well, you read about uh, uh, what authors are supposed to do. They're just supposed to sit down and start, and so that is just what I did, and I tried to write down everything that I could think of. My goal was uh, 400 pages, and I started with that. And then uh, when I got there... uh, I went back and reread it and had it edited and then started chopping and had it edited three times since, and rewritten it three times. The key characters, if I understand it correctly, your main character, his name is, or he's referred to as Brick, and then Cameo is the uh, the other side of that, the other key character. Mm-hmm. You mentioned sexual abuse in your book as uh, as your main characters have experienced as children, is that a key ingredient to the storyline? Yes, it's a good question. Uh, one of the reasons Brick ends up joining the Marine Corps and has a lifetime of struggle within the Marine Corps and within the civilian world is because what he endured uh, at the hands of a little league coach at the age of 11 and never willingly or being able to trust uh, adult figures and authority figures as it goes through life. And quite frankly, in retrospect, a lot of the decisions he made were good ones. He just didn't stick with them and stay with them, as he should have. And as far as Cameo is concerned, one of the most interesting things about her is the fact she was one of the first women appointed to the Air Force Academy, but then she was actually molested on the uh, examination table that got her into the Air Force Academy and uh, would not uh, divulge the uh, abuse to her AFJ ROTC leader or anybody else because she didn't want to jeopardize anything. And where does your story take place? Is it in the United States or elsewhere? Uh, The story takes place in the suburbs of St. Louis uh, across the river in St. Charles, Missouri, where uh, I happen to grow up. And... uh, it was a time in the 60s and 70s when uh, uh, St. Charles was booming. Uh, Donald Douglas was uh, producing a lot of F-4 Phantoms for the war, and there was the uh, white flight out of St. Louis. So uh, St. Charles was one of the fastest-growing counties in the United States for about uh, 10 to 15 years there. And what's its current status? I, well, I would say it started out, the county probably had 100,000, uh, maybe, back in the 60s, maybe 50,000, where now it's a half a million. Wow. So it's still growing. Ron, how long yeah. did it take you to write this, this particular novel? This is your first, isn't it? This is my first novel, and quite frankly, uh, it uh, parts of it were done 15 years ago, and... Uh, I had to wait until I completed my uh, primary focus. I, I personally went back into the Marine Corps, so I waited until I was out. And uh, in the middle of rebuilding my uh, retirement home, where my uh, great-great-grandfather had uh, homesteaded here in uh, rural Missouri and uh, working on rental houses, I wrote the novel and rewrote it and rewrote it. So quite frankly, the last five years. Five years of time. And as you completed it, in looking back, did there appear a an underlying message or a, a moral to the story that you want the readers to catch? 
underlying moral. Mm. Was there a message, or is it strictly entertainment? No, I think there are multiple messages, and uh, it's hard to lay down just one. But men love differently than therapy women. Uh, and I think women need to understand that. And uh, I know I'm on my uh, third marriage, and I've been more frank with this one than I was ever with the other two. And so that carries through, that uh, men are primarily driven to focus on their careers, and they have to, uh, to take care of their family. Uh, they don't have the uh, empathy and emotions that uh, women do. You've been able to trace your family history back before the Civil War, if I, uh, if I am reading your biography correctly. Is that uh, something that has impacted you at all? Oh, absolutely. Uh, all I heard about was family when I grew up from uh, my mother, and she was very good at uh, keeping track of all the family photos. Back when they started photographing uh, in the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, we've got them all. I've been able to track back uh, McElroy's, Reddings, Thurman's, uh, so on and so forth, to where I can find eight different uh, family members that were part of the Revolutionary War. And one of my ancestors actually founded the hometown where I live in now in 1818. Wow. That's a great piece of family history. I don't know that I've got that in my family tree. I've got a few nuts in there, but I not, not any founding uh, city of founding fathers, and that's uh, that's a neat history to uh, to be able to reflect back on that. In your book, is there a scene that will stand out to the reader as being either very poignant or powerful? I think the most uh, chilling story is uh, when the when Brick, the father, had to leave his uh, son in the midst of divorce, and uh, his son gave him the look like. Uh, what are you doing to me? Why are you leaving? And uh, it's a uh, uh, it's a point that uh, I know a lot of my fellow Marines have had to endure with, and a lot of men, in the fact that they seem uh, they're actually the underdogs when it comes to the divorce process. Uh, it seems like the stack uh, or the deck is stacked against them. That that, that is a, a difficult scene to imagine in uh, one's mind. Now, there must have been some challenges in getting your book completed. You just said you spent a number of years actually getting it to print. What other challenges did you face, and how did you overcome them? Well, part of it uh, was uh, dealing with just the situations in it and whether or not to say some of the things that I was going to say. And uh, the more I got into it, uh, the more it was not so much writing, it was therapy. But it was not just the writing of the book that, uh, now having looked back on it, writing it was the easy part. It was the editing that was tough and the marketing that is tougher. Well, that's why we're here. We're here to help you right. make success. Now, are you planning to write a sequel to this or another follow-up novel? I've had someone suggest that uh, as far as a sequel, but I think this story uh, is probably better left where it's at. Uh, but no, I've got five other, uh, I've got a wall that's and notes stuck all over my office, uh, and one of these days I'm going to have to organize it again, but I do have about five different uh, novel topics that I've got that I want to play with, yes. All right, Ron, thank you for joining me today. We have 258 pages in this book, Armor of Glass. Our author, R.M. 
A. Spears, S-P-E-A-R-S. Ron, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Jay, they can find it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and with AuthorHouse.com. Have you started a website as yet, or are you planning one in the future? I know I do need to get the uh, website uh, going, but I do not have one yet. It, it will be coming probably within the next two months. Fabulous. Thank you for joining me today and sharing the background story of your novel, Armor of Glass. RMA Spears has been my guest. Thank you, Ron, for joining me today. Thank you very much, Jay. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, I Surrender All, Five-Step Recovery Program. And the author is John Furr, and Jay joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jay. Hey, how are you, sir? Well, this isn't a bunch of theory. This is based on true story, your true story, of battling and beating an addiction to meth and cocaine, a five-step program that going to help people uh, see that God plays a very important role in all of this. In fact, without him, you don't heal yourself, right? Yeah, in fact, that's the whole basis of the book, is it's not it's not like a traditional AA or anything, which AA believes in God, but they don't really, you know, this is a straight God program, and without it, there's no possible way that you can do anything but get healed. So without him... The chances of recovering or being zero. healed, zero, is that, you you put it right that, to the bottom. That's what I believe. I mean, yeah. I did I, keep this in mind. I battled addiction for 15, well, 12 years um, and went in and out of AA, NA, um, 12-step programs here, uh, 30-day rehabs there, and nothing at all would heal me. Uh, mm. or, or I, I, could put, I could put time together. They call it sobriety, you know, Um you know, I could stop doing drugs for a period of time, but I never was right. The behaviors weren't right. The, the being healed wasn't right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And so I took uh, I took that to heart, and relapse, after the fourth or fifth relapse, I, I just completely didn't know. I mean, I was at my end. I, I figured I'd never quit. Um, you know, I, I'd fall in and out of love, do anything, anything it, you know, it took to try to 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 get sober, but all to no avail. So finally, when I humbled myself and and said, okay, this is it, it's either I quit or I die because I can't keep doing this life. I've lost everything, lost all my children. I had been uh, 
homeless. I've been to prison. And, and like you said, I got the jailhouse Christianity like everybody else does because when you're in prison, you have nowhere else but to go up and, and you're alone. So if you don't have some kind of a faith in God, you don't make it through that. And after spending a period of time in, in incarceration, you, you get sober. You put time together, the drugs get out of your system, but nothing really changes unless you get some kind of a belief system started. Luckily, I got a belief system started, and uh, even though I relapsed again, I, I was close enough to, to God to know exactly what I needed to do. And uh, that's how we got on all the, the programs, or so to speak, the program got born, if you want to say. Sure. Well, this isn't theory. You have proven that this five-step program works. It actually works. And as you say, be prepared to laugh, cry, and sit on the edge of your seat as you take this journey of recovery with you. So let's go back, Jay. Let's go back when things were pretty good. I mean, life was great, right? Yeah, I was born and raised in a normal home. My parents, a traditional southern home. Uh, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, sir, no, sir. I never drank, partied. Get no drugs in high school. I played a little college ball and, and went to college and got hurt. Um, went in the military and blew my knee out again. And then when I got got in there and I damaged my knee, I discovered a, a thing called pain pills. <laughs> and uh, that was my gateway drug is what they call it. Uh, when you find something that leads to other things, it's called entering a gate or the gateway. And that's what... Uh, my drug was, was was prescription medication was a gateway to the harder stuff. But I had no I had no child abuse as a child. I had no uh, couldn't blame it on mom and daddy. I mean it was pure me. I mean was raised to pray. Who believed who God was? Never been in trouble. Never went to jail. I did everything right. I thought, but uh, I wasn't prepared for what the devil had in store for me. So, battling for more than 15 years, uh, you got to the end of your rope. In that in that process, I mean, do you when you battle something for so long, 15 years, you probably almost overcome it, but then you go crashing down? Is that kind of the cycle? Yeah. You see, a lot of people don't realize this. Um, there's a difference in recovery and being healed, and, um, and that's what I... I've tried to touch on in my book. I had, I could put a year together. I could put two years together. I'd go 90 days, and then I'd go to another meeting and see some of my best connects and go out and get high. I, I just couldn't ever reprogram it because I didn't have – I had the belief in God, but I didn't I didn't put him – I didn't allow his blood to heal for me. And let me explain that. If you go to a doctor and you, you've been diagnosed with cancer, you take treatments, um, and your cancer goes in remission. Um, but if the cancer cells are completely destroyed and, and you're completely healed from it, um, you, you go back for a checkup occasionally, but you don't have, you don't have that cancer cell in you. Now, in a drug addiction, the, the thinking and the, the behaviors are all a process. And, and if you quit drugs, that's not just a problem. The problem is with the way you think and what you surround yourself with. And if you, if you quit drugs for a year and you still live with a woman that drinks or, or does pills or if you still hang out in a local bar or you still hang out with drug addicts, eventually you're going to do the same thing they're doing because you that's behavior. But if you modify your, your whole self and you not only quit the drug, 
but quit the behavior and start doing things that are supposed to be done. Like, I, I never refer to myself as an addict. And, and every time you go to an AA meeting, you're told to stand up and introduce yourself. You introduce, hi, I'm Jay, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic. I don't believe that. I believe that invites the devil back into your life. Hmm. Now, if I stood up and said, hey, I'm an addict, guess what I've done? I've just surrendered defeat. I've just told everybody that the blood of Christ is not going to heal me. It's not, I'm not healed. So I always refer to it as I've been healed from drugs because I have such a Christian belief in, in, in life that I believe actually that there was a an actual Savior that lived on the earth and actually died and, and paid for our sins. I, I believe that, and that's the only way that I've been able to put a life together since then, but with zero relapse. Well, you must get tempted. No, not at all. Really? I, but not at all. That's what's so neat. I can't explain it. Um, when it finally happened, when I finally knew it, I was done was when the book came about, and um, and and I I wrote I wrote this book in approximately four days. I just started writing, and it came to me on the back of a napkin while sitting in church. The five things that I do every day, and I'm telling you right now, I've not had one single temptation just to do drugs. Um, alcohol has never been a real problem for me. Uh, occasionally I'll have a glass of wine when we're out to a nice restaurant, but I never have had more than two. I've never had a relapse. What sort of things, Lord, I, I just haven't. I, I believe that I was healed 100%, just like you would get healed from cancer. I believe that I've been healed of addiction. Well, we're not going to cover all five steps here. We don't have time to do that. But uh, we certainly want to talk about a couple of them, uh, Jay. Uh, the first one, you say, identify your God. Now, help us understand where you're coming from on that. Okay. When you're uh, – so many people's God can be different things, and let me explain that. When I first got sober, when I got out of prison, and the first relapse after that, uh, I had began working, and I worked so hard that – I didn't have time to, to even think about addiction. I mean, I was just work, work, work. So I replaced my my addiction with work, and my new God became nice things, money. God, thank you. Let me have more money. Let me have this. Let me have that. That's what I mean by identifying your God. I, you have to, for this program, this specific program to work, you have to identify your God as the same God that was in the Bible, the same God of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, that same God, not not some higher power like 12 Steps do. I know A says the higher power can be trees and wind. It can be your sponsor. I'm telling you, it can't be trees and wind, and it can't be a sponsor. It has to be the God of the Bible. You have got to. If you do not believe in that God, it will not work. So a lot of faith here, a lot of faith has to come from within that person. Exactly. And, and the thing about it is, is what have they got to lose? Exactly. They're dead end now. Yeah. I mean, everything they've tried... It's not worked, so why not give it one more whirl and absolutely believe like like the like the book tells you? Go that angle and just see what happens. What do they got to lose? So why did it take? How long did it take in your fifteen years to reach a point where you started uh, calling upon God? Probably at the the fourteenth year. Wow. I mean, I would okay. I would ask God to help me. I would go and I would. Do, I would do my 12-step program and make amends where amends could be made, step five. I would do this. I would I would pray. I would read my Bible. But nothing ever really struck. Nothing ever really hit me until I had relapsed the last time 
when I was working in Hawaii, and, and I knew I, I finally was alone. I knew that God, it was either death, it was either going to be death, or I was going to get healed, one of the two. So a a crossroads. You had to decide yeah. what you were going to do. You came to a point, and it was either mm-hmm. one way or another. And one of them uh, must have been oh, pretty yeah. scared. Yeah, and and I'm. What was it? I mean, again, it's. I'm trying to understand, and I don't even know if you can explain all that you were feeling because those are uh, sometimes un- unexplainable. The feelings. <laughs> that you had yeah. at that moment in time where all of a sudden you knew that you had to give it to God. And you reached that point, believe it or not, you finally do. And, and I did. And I, I was soulless. I, I stood in front of the mirror. I had lost, I'd been up about nine, nine or 10 days. I'd lost about 60 pounds on this run. I, uh, I, I just dropped to my knees. I looked in the mirror and I couldn't see who I was. And, and then I walked out of the drug house and went walking on the beach. And I could see people on the beach playing and talking. And, and I could see smiles and new clothes. And this is something I hadn't had for a year or so because I was so, every dime was going to, to my drugs. And, uh, and, and the simplest thing, I, I could hear children laughing and run up to a dad and mom and get hung. I saw it. I could see it. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, that's what I need. I need to realize that's where the secrets are. And. All of a sudden, I finally said, okay, I'm done. I give it all to you, but this time I can't be playing. I've got, and I started praying a prayer, God, make me physically sick, even at the sight of drugs. Give me something, something to rock my world to where I, I can leave this woman I'm with and this and that. I mean, there's a lot of things in my life, and I believe I prayed a massive heart attack and a arrest on, on to myself. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but um, <laughs> I still have an artificial heart valve due to my drug uh, use, so I could physically die if I ever did it. <laughs> and you know, I don't even look at it that way, but but that's the truth. I, I guess I could physically die if I ever did it again. So I, pray without ceasing. That how? I mean, just pray all you the never time. Stop. I mean, every chance yeah, I mean, you get, every every break moment you have in life yeah. where there's a little lull between whatever you're doing, yep. you're, you're praying. Are you there, God? Do you hear me? Can you believe I'm doing this? You know what? I made another day, Lord. Oh, my gosh. You know what? Let me do this. Let me do that. Every time I would literally be in conversation and every action that I would do, I had some kind of a fervent prayer going on in my heart. And I found out that once I did that, Pretty soon, I was spending 30, in the morning, I would spend 30 minutes a morning on my knees. Um, I still do that to this day, about 30 minutes. I spend five or 10 minutes a day, minimum, on my knees, thanking God for what I have and, and just talking to Him. Well, I mean, this isn't rocket science stuff. It's nothing fancy. But I'll tell you right now, I've, I've seen hundreds of people's lives change from this program that's changed my life. Um, and, and I wish I would... I would wish that more people could get a hold of it just to, just to see. Uh, but there's nothing to lose here. You've got, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Well, you've taken this book and everything you've learned, and you've created a Christian retreat. We did, yes. We actually sold that uh, to an association uh, down here, a, a church association. Uh, and we just go out and actually, I don't, um, they've changed the name of it and have it bigger than what we want. So we, 
we just go and counsel with them. Uh, I go and make visits, and that's pretty much it. But we did. We took the proceeds and opened a, a retreat, and uh, it's it's been a it's been a blessing for people. It has been a blessing for us. Well, this is your story. It's a non-traditional approach, basically much different than the 12-step program, as you've emphasized here. And an addiction can be cured. Uh, not just you yes, can be can. in recovery. You can be cured, 100% cured. Yes. Just like the blind men would get their sight restored to them in the ancient times, just like the dead men would be raised from the dead. It's the same belief system. I mean, if you read the Bible and hear the stories, why can't... If God loved them so much to do that to them, why can't He love us this much to do it to us? Exactly. Well said. Well said, Jay. Uh, We've been listening to Jay Furr. His official uh, name for his book is John Furr, and the title is I Surrender All. Five-step recovery program. Jay, tell us what's the best way to get your book. Um, you can go on um, BarnesandNoble.com, Author House, A-U-T-H-O-R House dot com, Google Books. It's available on Kindle. Um, just order them up, and if anyone needs, uh, you know, they have means to get hold of me, I'll sign anything they want. We used to have a website for it, but I don't have that anymore. Uh, but that's the best way to get a hold of it. Thank you so much, Jay, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you. Have a great great day. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Marsha's Story. Our author, Teresa Armstead, who joins me from West Texas. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Teresa, tell me a, a little background story about you personally. You are in West Texas. You have a, a background as an educator. And somehow this story came to you, Marsha's story. Why did it come to you? What's the background about that? And why did you choose to write her story? Marsha's story is the story of a friend um, from college uh, who was actually murdered. And uh, I just wanted to get her story out. Uh, there are some fictional, uh, I guess, fictional conversations or other aspects to your book, but it really, in its essence, is a true story. Yes, it is. And 
when did this take place, this incident that changed lives forever? In the 1980s. And was Marcia from Texas also, or was she living in Georgia at the time? She, she is from Georgia, or was from Georgia, and lived in Georgia at the time of her death. In going back over the incidents surrounding her death, what to you was the most startling as you began to look at her life and her, her, her death? Did you, at the time of her death, feel there was something suspicious about it, or was it something that just evolved as time progressed? Well, the other character in the book is, is another friend, and we both had questions concerning her death. And so we worked on, on trying to figure out exactly what did happen. Because she was healthy, she was strong, she was preparing to move, she was in the, the prime of her life, and just to have it ended so quickly was startling. Was she married at the time? No, she was not married. She was not married. Uh, what had she been married? Yes, she had been married. And, and the the male character in the book was based upon her husband. Her husband, who uh, I guess she was divorced from him at the time, or separated. She was divorced. At the she time. was divorced. What were the incidents that led up to her? As they say, and I'll put this in quotations, they they said it was a suicide. I I am not exactly sure what led up to the suicide, except that um, what we do know is that um, she worked for the city and it was determined that there was some missing money and she's the one who tracked down the missing money. And so we're not exactly sure why it was labeled a suicide, though they did send her body more than once for an autopsy. What was the suspicious, I guess, activities or suspicious uh, things that surrounded her death other than that particular accusation that perhaps uh, she had been involved in embezzlement? Well... One of the other things that was very suspicious was that she, Marsha was left-handed and could not do anything with her right hand. Uh, she, it was more or less, she was more or less helpless with her right hand, and the gun was found in her right hand. So it was a gun suicide or yeah. firearm. Mm. Those are tough. She had been a friend for over 30 years at the time of this incident. When did it specifically take place? Did you say 1980s? In the, in the late 1980s, late 1980s, early 1990s. Sure. And soon after that, did you and your friend begin doing some investigation on your own, or did you wait for the authorities to, to initiate that investigation? We began on our own. And how did you begin that? That's, uh, that's very curious as well. Well, we began talking to people, including her family. And what did you discover as you were talking to them? Well, the, the curiosity surrounding her death. Um, her body was found in the bed, but she supposedly committed suicide in the bathroom. Ooh. Um, and then the fact that 
the gun was in her right hand, and just one thing led to another. Uh, did they check for residue on her hand? Gun residue. That I do not know. Don't know that. Did Did you uh, investigate by uh, approaching the authorities there and getting some of their take on the incident that had taken place? Well, I tried, but the sheriff was gone when I uh, went to Georgia. You actually traveled to Georgia, her hometown, the time of the incident, to check up and find out more details about how they came to this conclusion. Yes, I did. And how long ago was that? Oh, goodness. Was that, that all, was shortly after the death or, or years later? It was years later. Years later. As you were writing this book, did you have a specific audience in mind, someone that you felt might benefit from reading your book? I not a specific audience. My my purpose in writing the book was just to get Marsha's story out there so that people could read her story. Was the conclusion made by the authorities, was that uh, something that remained constant, or has it changed? No, it is constant. They never changed anything concerning the assumption that she had committed suicide. So, no, it's still marked as a suicide. Still marked on the books as a suicide. What was the most startling thing that you discovered in your investigations other than the fact that it was in her right hand, the, the gun, the, the weapon? Well, uh, there were some things that had disappeared, uh, one being her journals had disappeared, and Marcia was a writer. She wrote down everything. Uh, she would sit at night and write in her journal, uh, and those journals disappeared. Um, she had... Um, her ex-husband had told her that he, she would never receive money from him. He would see her dead first. And just things just kind of added up to a specific direction um, of her death. And then we found that that was not the direction from that her death had come from. It was not from her husband. Oh, really? Yes. Now there's a teaser. Uh, how did you how did you discover that, and why did not the authorities uh, jump into the middle of that dis of that investigation? Um, the truth came from her brother, and uh, he is the one who told us what happened, and he is now dead. So, ouch. <laughs> now you you mention the diaries in your novel itself. You also bring those up. Did you fictionalize any of the discovery aspects of the uh, journals that were were they rediscovered or were they not rediscovered? Uh, they were rediscovered, but her husband did not have them. Her brother has them. Fascinating. This is a, a I guess, a troubling tale on one side, and also an intriguing story on the other. How long did it take you to do the research and complete this book, Teresa? Four years. Four years. Did you spend a lot of time in Georgia, or was most of it via the Internet and by phone? Uh, most of the research was done with my friend who, li who now lives in Austin. If you were to introduce this book to someone, how would you describe 
the concept, the content, and the story? I would say that it is a fiction book based upon reality, that uh, it is the true story of a friend whose death was suspicious, and it has a twerk at the end that one does not expect. And was that something that was based on real life, or was it also fiction? The ending was fiction. The ending was fiction. Yes. 168 pages. Do you think your book is unique in the marketplace, or is it similar to others out there? I think it's pretty unique because it is based on reality, and it has a little bit of twerk at the end, so I think it's pretty unique. Did you enjoy the process sufficiently that you have decided, I'm going to be an author in my retirement and do more books? <laughs> well, I keep being asked that, but right now I am working, so um, I'm going to have to see. Well, I didn't mean to imply you were sitting around. I, 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 I just <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I just have a job. I'm an office manager for my husband's business. So. Right, but you had been in, in the uh, education uh, ed- education career and, and had retired from that, so I was uh, taking my cue from that, that you were not <laughs> teaching any longer. Yes, I, I spent 30 years in the classroom. So. Well, thank you for your service there. Is there any underlying message that you want the reader to take away from reading about Marcia's story? I think the underlying message is that friendship carries over. No matter how long you've known someone, friendship carries over after death, before death, and that life changes things. That that doesn't mean that our Our friendships have to change. It's been almost 25 years since the uh, death of Marcia, and yet you still have an affection for her, a long-term memory appreciation for that friendship. Uh, That certainly underscores that, not only from what you've just said, but also from the story you've written. Were there challenges in getting this to print? There were a lot of challenges in getting it to print. I, I... had to change the names of some of the characters. Um, my friend and I decided it would be better not to put in the real names of the characters, and um, there were challenges in that. I it took me a while to find someone who would publish the book. So, but you did accomplish it, and the title of the book again is Marsh's Story. Teresa Armstead has been my guest. Teresa, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, You can get them from Amazon. You can get them from Barnes & Noble. And do you have a website personally? Uh, No, I do not. Well, eventually, because you are an educator, you will have a website, I'm sure, especially if you do a sequel. Marsha's story has been the the book of uh, record today, and our author, Teresa Armstead. Thank you so much, Teresa, for joining me today. Thank you. For Author House and Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker.